continuing in our series on Philippians, and Josh is going to come forward and lead us. Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, as Pastor Rod said, and we're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 4 today, uh, continuing our series in Philippians. If you don't have a Bible or if it's kind of unfamiliar, you can follow along up on the screen. The words will be uh, up on the screen today as we read. But uh, while you're finding the passage, I want to start with a question. Uh, And the question is this. How many of you have ever received a command or a rule of some kind that by its very nature inspired you to disobey it? (laughs) Have any of you ever done that? I just want to see how many sinners we have. That's where we start and then we get you later with the... um, by its, some commands, by their very nature, and maybe by my, by my very nature, actually inspire their own sort of countermanding, their own disobedience, their own rebellion. I heard a story of a hotel once in Texas that was built on a canal, and somebody had the bright idea of putting a sign on the windows that said, no fishing from your hotel room, which caused terrible problems because the lines got snagged, and the only way they could fix the problem was to take the signs down. And people just, they'd never thought about it before, but when they got the rule, you know, that'd be a great idea. I could just sit here in my pajamas and fish. Um, when I was a young boy, I received a birthday present at a kind of frighteningly young age of a toy BB gun. And I don't know if people still give guns to small children these days, but uh, I lived out in the country and I got a, a, it wasn't a Red Rider like in the movie, it was a daisy, it was a daisy BB gun, and, and I was transformed into a stone-cold killer, um, Chris Kyle style. It was, I was a sniper, uh, pop cans, small animals, um, windows occasionally, uh, and so I went and visit my grandpa in western Kansas, and in western Kansas there's just nothing, it's just completely flat, and, and there were some trees around his property to break the wind, and so of course there were birds in these trees, and And my grandpa, this is one of them, um, my grandpa gave me one command. He said, you can can shoot. It's kind of like you can eat from any tree in the garden. You can shoot from any tree in the garden, but don't shoot the robins. And he repeated it, don't shoot the robins. I like the robins. They're colorful, right? And so I set out on my, my hunting expedition, and I don't know what it was, like all I saw were robins, and like all the other birds were just, you know, flitting away into the trees, and the robins were just like this one, just taunting you, just, just yelling things, and, and, um, and I thought, like, this is wrong, they, they should not have this sort of um, sense of security, this sense of entitlement, um, and, and so sure enough, I think we even have another slide, this sort of, or, uh, <laughs> This is almost George Lucas-level graphics right here, CGI. We spent a lot of money on that. Um, and so, of course, I mean, you know where it's going. I, I shot a robin. And, and just like with every homicide, um, the, the real challenge is, is not so much the act, but the, what do you do with the body? And, and so I, I didn't want to, there wasn't, it's western Kansas, there's not a lot of places to hide a body, and, and the soil is tough, and so... 
I got really creative and I thought, I won't try to hide it. I'll put it right in the middle of the dirt road. And somebody will think, oh, a car hit that robin. And so that's what I did. And I went back inside and later in the day we went for a walk and somebody noticed, hey, there's a, <laughs> there's a big robin laying in the middle of the road. And my grandpa said, did you shoot that robin? And I'm a horrible liar. And so I just, I just confessed. I'd be horrible under interrogation. <laughs> yeah, I shot the robin. I never really wanted to. I've never even done it before, but you gave me this command, and suddenly I wanted to shoot the robin. There are some rules, some commands, that in some ways actually sort of inspire their own disobedience or in some ways actually make, make it worse because of our sinful nature. Paul says this about the law in the Old Testament, that in some cases... The law causes sin to sort of spring to life within us. Uh, some of you have experienced this maybe yourself or with your children. You say, don't date that guy, right? And what, do you, what do they suddenly want to do, right? Uh, don't do that, right? It sort of springs to life within us. And so we're going to encounter a command today in Philippians chapter 4, and some people would probably argue that by giving this command, Paul is really not helping us out. He's just, it just sort of doesn't make it easier. And we'll have to read the passage to see what the command is uh, because I want to I challenge that just a little bit. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. We'll, it's a long passage. We'll read through the whole thing. I want to focus on one part of it. It says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. I always wonder what it would be like to get called out in the Bible and just have your name synonymous with sort of fighting for 2,000 years. So he Command Euodia and Sitica to be of the same mind, uh, along with Clement and the rest of the, my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. It's a, it's a long passage, and there's lots of sort of exhortations and, and commands in the passage, but the one that I want to focus on today is a very short command. Uh, Paul says this, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. And many of you probably have struggled with anxiety, and you know what a struggle anxiety is. Probably before we even you know, sort of dissect the command and whether or not it provides a solution or not, 
we should probably just answer the question, what is anxiety? Paul says, do not be anxious. Um, And sort of the dictionary definition of this term that he commands us against is a feeling of worry, of nervousness, of unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. That's what anxiety is, a sense of worry, the sense of nervousness or dis-ease or unease. And Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. And so if you struggle with anxiety and, and, I, and you came in to meet with me as a counselor or something and I said, okay, okay, what do I do? First step, don't be anxious. That'll be $100. Uh, these are billable hours, right? Right now, these are billable hours. Um, you're like, well, that's that doesn't help. That's just a command. Like now, I'm thinking about all the things I could be anxious about: there's taxes, there's death, there's, you know, my brackets busted. Um, it doesn't just giving the command doesn't fix the problem. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental uh, malady in the U.S. Over 40 million American adults are afflicted with anxiety disorders or struggles. And many of us in this room would say, yep, that's me. I'm in that 40 million category. And Paul cares about anxiety. He says in this passage, do not be anxious about anything. Uh, But how does that help? How does that help? I read an article this week. I was doing research in anxiety. If anything can make you anxious, it's doing lots of research on anxiety. And I brought a picture of an article in The Atlantic The editor of The Atlantic, a very successful guy by the name of Scott Stossel, wrote an article in his own magazine, which I suppose is one way to guarantee it gets published. Um, Surviving anxiety. He says, I've tried therapy, drugs, booze. Here's how I came to terms with the nation's most common mental illness. And he details his struggle with, with phobias, with fears, the sort of the counseling sessions he's been to, uh, medications, and just kind of tells his story, this very painful, very difficult struggle with anxiety that many of us in this room are, are familiar with. I, I took a, a literature class for fun, which is something I'd never do in college, last semester with our own Dr. Daylene Fisher, Dr. Fisher. She just finished her PhD and um, she's not, I don't think she's here today. I think she's out of town for a wedding, but you can tell her we talked about her class. So um, I, I took a class on Shakespeare and, and maybe the most famously anxious character in all of Shakespeare is, is Hamlet. He's sort of famously anxious and brooding and many people see him as like this sort of paradigm for the modern for the modern man, there's this line that says that anxiety is that something in his soul o'er which his melancholy sits on brood. This sort of worry or dread. And Paul says, do not be anxious. And if the command was all by itself, and then he just went on to a list of other things like, you know, and also tell the truth and also fold your laundry and also do the, you know. We might say that it's in that category of commands that doesn't really make it better. It actually sometimes can, can cause this sort of swelling of, of rebellion or even anxiety by virtue of giving it. But one of the things I want to argue today is that this passage, when we look at it in its broader context, actually does give 
some clues or, or some, some tips or some ideas or some practical steps by which Christians can, can battle with anxiety. That it doesn't just leave us with an empty, cold command, but it actually gives us um, some steps or some, some tips for battling anxiety. And so some of those are listed in, in your update today. Paul's keys or Paul's ideas to battling anxiety. The first one, the first one I want to talk about is this. It's the need to choose joy and then to keep on choosing it. The need to choose to be a person of joy. Joy not just as an emotion, but joy as a choice, as a product of the volition, of the will to choose to be a person of joy. He says this in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, rejoice, choose joy. Gordon Fee, who's a famous uh, Bible commentary, a great, great scholar, writes a commentary on Philippians, and he says this, I'll have the quote up on the screen, that Gordon Fee says, joy, unmitigated, untrammeled joy is, or at least should be, the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. He says the wearing of black and the long face, which so often came to typify some later expressions of Christian piety, are totally foreign to the Pauline version. Paul, the theologian of grace, is equally the theologian of joy. He says for Paul, the defining mark of the Christian life is joy, joy untrammeled, unmitigated joy. But probably the, the next question we got to ask is like, well, what does that mean? Right? Because Paul goes through some terrible experiences. Paul is clearly not always happy. He writes in his letters of being pressed down. He writes of, of despairing once of life itself. He, he writes of this. And so clearly it's not synonymous with, with mere happiness. So, so what is this joy? Uh, it can't be synonymous with this sort of phony, plastic, Sunday morning Christian smile, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? How you doing? Just blessed. Blessed, brother. Praise him, right? Meanwhile, life's going up in smoke, right? It's just a facade, right? It can't be synonymous with just a phony, plastic Christian smile. What is joy? Um, you could argue that Joy in the Christian sense is to find your delight, your hope, your sense of identity in Christ rather than your circumstances. To locate your delight, your identity, your hope in Christ. There's that crucial word, two letters in the English language, I in, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice that regardless of the bank account, the price of oil, the job situation, the kids situation, the marriage situation, that in Christ you are loved and secure and taken care of. Rejoice in that, Paul says. To come back to Hamlet, there's this line in Hamlet, a more hopeful line, where he says, there is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hewn 
them how we will. There's this divinity that guides the end of our life. And though we rough hew the edges, this God is looking out for us. And Paul says, rejoice in that. Rejoice in the Lord always. And that that can be a kind of antidote to anxiety. Rejoice in the Lord. Why does he repeat it? We could ask that question too. Why does Paul repeat the command? I don't know. Um, my sense is that I, I used to, I'm not talking about Adam Miller, but I had to, used to have these youth pastors who would just repeat things. Like they would, it's like whatever, they would ask you to say something and it was never loud enough, right? I can't hear you, right? It was sort of like a pep rally and they would just keep repeating it. And as an introvert, who gets a little anxious sometimes, that was not helpful. It wasn't helpful just to keep repeating it over and over. So why does Paul repeat this command to rejoice in the Lord? There's a sermon, I was talking to a, a colleague of mine yesterday, he was talking about a preacher in his manuscript, he would written on the margin, logic weak, yell louder. <laughs> is that what Paul's doing with this exclamation point? Just, no, no, just yell. And I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I think one of the reasons Paul repeats the command to rejoice is it's a choice that you have to keep making. It is not a choice that you just make somewhere, you know, back in 1983, I chose to be joyful and it's just carried me through, right? It's a choice that has to be made every morning. It's a choice that has to be made every day to live in the joy that God provides, not synonymous with phony, plastic, Christian, fake smile happiness, but in the, in the solid joy of knowing that you've been chosen, you've been marked, you've been loved by God. The first antidote, Paul says, to anxiety is to choose joy and to keep choosing it. Number two, I think, I think you could argue that a second antidote in the passage is to choose prayer. And to choose prayer as a kind of unburdening. To choose to be a person who is marked by prayer and the unburdening that that carries with it. Verse six, this comes right after the command about anxiety. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And so there he joins together joy, thanksgiving, which we talked about already, with the need to present your request to God in prayer and in petition. Moises Silva also writes a commentary on, on Philippians, a, a noted Bible scholar. He says this, the opposite of anxiety, indeed its relief, is the peace that only God, in answer to prayer, bestows upon his people. That the, in some way, prayer, reaching out to God, coming before God in prayer, doesn't have to be fancy, doesn't have to have these and thous, is an antidote to anxiety. Sam Harris, a famous atheist, um, he's undergone oddly enough, a kind of spiritual conversion of late. And he's still an atheist. But he talks about how he discovered the need for a kind of prayer and meditation in his life. 
he calls it waking up to this side of himself that he had ignored. And at some point, it starts to become almost like a humorous, like if even atheists are recognizing the need for prayer, then certainly Christians should see it, right? He's like, I, I realized I needed this. Even if I don't believe in it, I needed it, which is, which is odd, right? Who do you pray to? But, um, but there is this sense in which prayer is an antidote to anxiety. Um, and, and we could talk about lots of kinds of prayer. There are all sorts of reasons that we pray. One of the reasons we pray as Christians is that we believe that God answers prayer. We believe in a God of miracles, a God of provision, that the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God today, that he hasn't just like gone off the clock in a sense when it comes to answered prayer. But another reason we pray is a kind of unburdening. And if you could picture, like imagine a picture of someone just holding a bag open. Sometimes we go to God with our bag, right? And we're like, give me, give me, just give me. <laughs> like my kids say, I need, they say, right? Don't even finish the sentence. I just, I need. Um, and we go to God with our bag open. And if, if the thing that we're asking for doesn't come to us, then our sense is that the prayer failed or that we failed or that God failed, or something, because it's all about filling the bag. But another reason for prayer, we could argue, it's not just about filling the bag, it's also about emptying it. It's about taking all of those things, and those worries, and those anxieties, and those concerns, that backpack that's just loaded down with those, those rocks, if you will, and doing what Paul says, he uses the word present. Present them to God, like you're emptying the backpack in prayer of these anxieties and these worries. And that in the mere process of communing, of listening, of being heard, there is a, a relief that comes from anxiety. Choose prayer as a kind of unburdening experience, as an antidote to, to anxiety. Third thing, third thing that Paul says. Choose to dwell on the true, the noble, and the lovely. Choose to meditate on, to think on, to focus on the true, the noble, and the lovely. This is, Paul says it with, with more words than me, which is, which is kind of typical, but verse 8 Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think or dwell on such things. He goes through this list of true, noble, pure, right, lovely, admirable. Choose to dwell on those things. Um, there's studies that come out periodically, and I've, I've listed a couple on the screen here just in the next slide of uh, websites that do, they do reports on why it is that bad news sells far better than good news. If you notice, you turn on the news, it's not just like a long series of stories that say like, you know, today, <laughs> lots of people were happy somewhere in Iowa. Right? It was, it's, not, you know, it's not just like, and also a kitten was saved from a tree. No, it's just like a long list of disasters and crimes and, and struggles. 
And so there have been studies on why it is that bad news is, is simply more prevalent um, than good news. And one of these was a study that came out from McGill University. And what they basically say is that every single human being, when it comes to what grabs our attention, what grabs our eyeballs, what gets ratings, every single one of us has what they call a negativity bias. And they call that our collective hunger to hear and remember bad news, to be more interested in it than we are in, in good news. They call it a, a universal negativity bias. And so why is it that Paul commands, he, he instructs us to meditate, to focus on the true and the, the noble and the lovely? I think maybe one reason it is, is that for all of us, our default is the opposite. For all of us, our default is to focus on what's going wrong or to focus on what we are afraid of. Um, there are merchants of outrage who cash in on this. There's the reality that fear is a, is a remarkable selling point when it comes to information. And so Paul says, focus on the true, the noble, the good, as an antidote to anxiety. Pastor Rod last week talked about social media and how this exacerbates our negativity bias. And I think that was a, just a, a fantastic point to make, that, that social media in some ways amplifies some of our collective human dangers or weaknesses when it comes to negativity. And Paul says, find a way to focus on the true, the noble, and the lovely as a way to counteracting anxiety and fear. Maybe for some of you, I know my wife has done this, maybe others of you have done this, um, the making of just like a, a gratitude list when you feel overwhelmed or when you feel anxious. Like, God, thank you for these specific things in my life. Maybe not everything's going great, maybe not everything is going well, but, but Lord, thank you for these things and to focus on the true, the noble, and the lovely, and to see, to see what that does to our, our anxiety and our feedback loop of, of fear, if you would. Choose prayer, choose joy, choose to dwell on the, on the true. And lastly, number four, I think Paul would say this, choose to obey in spite of conflict, and in spite of questions. We get this sense, earlier in the passage, I sort of joked about these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who, who were probably, they definitely were leaders in the church. Paul calls them his co that they were his co-laborers, right? These are not just two random women. These are leaders in the church in Philippi, and they've sort of been immortalized because they were in some sort of conflict, and we don't know what it was, but clearly in Philippi and in every single one of Paul's churches, every single one of his letters is meant to address conflicts of one kind or another and, and problems of one kind or another. But he says this in verse 9. He says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the peace of, and the God of peace will be with you. Whatever you've learned, received, heard from me, 
or seen in me, put it into practice. Um, many of us, myself included, probably especially me, because I'm a professor by vocation, many of us have been educated well beyond our obedience. And we have learned far more than we have ever applied. And so Paul says one of the keys in this passage to a life of joy, a life that, that counteracts this tendency toward anxiety, he says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice. Obey. Obey in the really, really simple things of life. Um, probably something that we all would admit is that sometimes anxiety is heightened by a lack of obedience, right? When you, when you cheat on your taxes, you are more anxious about being caught cheating on your taxes. <laughs> when you steal from the store, you are more anxious when that little alarm goes off than if you're simply a paying customer. And so not in all cases, but in some cases, anxiety is rooted in a lack of obedience in a particular area of our life. Not always, but sometimes. And Paul says, choose to obey or to put into practice what you've, what you've heard. It's, it's stunning to me that Jesus, when he, when he gathers this community around himself, the disciples, um, the first words that we see that him saying to them in certain instances is, follow me. And they have to follow, in some cases, before they even believe. That they have to put into practice, they have to, to, to walk along with him before they come to understand in a full sense who he even is. And so for some of you, maybe you're on the fence with regard to the gospel, maybe you don't even know if God is real. And maybe one of the commands that would do you good is to simply obey as if you were. Not, not in an effort to earn his love or his salvation, we don't do that here, but as a way of following just like the disciples did, uh, to, to, to choose obedience in spite of conflict and in spite of questions. Do not, Paul says, do not be anxious. And then some steps towards um, battling that anxiety. I want to end where I started, and that is with shooting birds. There is a an ancient Sophoclean hero by the name of Philoctetus. And I brought a picture of Philoctetus today. You'll have to fast forward, I think, through one other slide um, to get to him. There he is. And, and just as I promised, a dead bird. <laughs> but Scott Stossel, in the article, you can go back one slide now, on anxiety, his sort of article anxiety, he talks about the link between his anxiety that he has had to battle and other good aspects of his character. The link sometimes between anxiety and artistic genius. The link sometimes between anxiety and empathy or compassion. And he writes this at the end of his article. He says, in his 1941 essay, The Wound and the Bow, the literary critic Edmund Wilson writes of the Sophoclean hero, Philoctetus whose never healing snake bite wound on his foot is linked to a gift 
for unerring accuracy with his bow. So it's kind of a catch-22. You got this unhealing snake bite wound, but you never miss a bird with your bow and arrow, right? He says that, linked to his gift for unerring accuracy with his bow and arrow. He says his disease, his frustrating disease, is inseparable from his superhuman art for marksmanship. He says, I've always been drawn to this parable, and in it lies, as the writer Jeanette Winterson has put it, the nearness of the wound to the gift. The nearness of the wound to the gift, the insight that in weakness is also the potential for transcendence, for heroism, for redemption. He says, my anxiety remains to some extent an unhealed wound that at times holds me back and fills me with shame. But in other respects, it may also be at the same time a source of strength and a bestower of certain blessings. Maybe you would disagree with Stossel. I don't know that he's a Christian. Um, you would certainly disagree with some of his methods for dealing with anxiety. But he does mention something that is a Christian truth. And that is the nearness of the wound and the gift. Paul writes about a wound, not in Philippians, but elsewhere. He calls it his thorn that he carries with him. Sounds very similar to some of the ways Stossel writes about his anxiety. He says, this thorn in my flesh, I pleaded three times that it would be taken away, but God said, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. That even the thorn has this beautiful byproduct, which is to keep him from becoming overly conceited, Paul says. For Jesus, the wound is not just near the gift. For Jesus, the wound becomes the means or the medium of the gift. It's by his scars that we recognize him. It's his broken body and shed blood that we receive through faith, that we participate in through communion. So for maybe some of you today, this mere command to don't be anxious doesn't seem sufficient. And I think Paul would say, it's not. It takes more. It takes the Spirit of God coming alongside of you and coming within you to allow that command to be lived out. Do not be anxious in anything. Choose joy. Choose prayer. Choose to dwell on the good, the noble, the beautiful, the true, the lovely. Choose to obey even while you're asking and struggling with some of those questions. And in, in those things, by God's grace, the wound and the gift remain nearby. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your, your word, this passage, almost 2,000 years old, is not irrelevant. And that just as Paul commands us to to not be people who give ourselves over to anxiety. Lord, we struggle with that. As the statistics tell us, so many of us struggle with anxiety. But Lord, we thank you that you haven't just given us rules or, or mere commands. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your son. 
a wounded healer so that we might be wounded healers as well. Help us this week, especially those who struggle with anxiety, with worry, with this, this sense of dread. Help us to choose joy and to keep choosing it. Help us to be people of prayer that counteract anxiety, not with unhealthy coping mechanisms, but with prayer, presenting our burdens, our requests to you. Help us, Lord, to swim upstream against a culture of negativity and the merchants of outrage. Help us to choose to dwell on the good and the beautiful in ourselves, in others, and most importantly, in your word. Lord, help us to obey. Help us to follow as the disciples did, by your grace. It's in your name. It's with celebration and the resurrection and the gift of your spirit that we, uh, we go out, Lord, to live out this command to not be anxious this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As always, if you need prayer for anything, um, there'll be folks up here at the front who would be happy to pray with you. Have a fantastic week. You're dismissed.